If you have your Bibles, please meet me in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, what a delight it is to be here with you. I absolutely adore and love your pastor, Pastor Jordan. If you're here today and uh, you don't have a church or looking for a church, an authentic pastor who loves Jesus, I can't uh, recommend anyone better to you than Pastor Jordan. Uh, when our family lived here in New York City, uh, Jordan and I got a chance to connect on several occasions, and uh, man, I just felt really, really drawn to him. Uh, now I pastor a church in Silicon Valley, uh, a place called, I heard some ooze. <laughs> Are y'all hating on Silicon Valley? We got better weather than y'all, and I could go on and on and on, but it cost me more to live there than here, if you can believe that. Unbelievable. Uh, and I also love what I'm seeing here this morning, the diversity here. This is what heaven's going to be like, and uh, I am grateful for the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, among us. Well, I see they got a little ticker on me, um, 33 minutes and 52, 51 50 seconds for the Holy Spirit to move. <laughs> a timer on a chocolate preacher, I tell you. Y'all something else, man. Let's do it. James chapter 5, um, pick me up in verse 7. Um, this ain't going to be no shouting sermon, but I think it'll help. And we'll see that right away. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. James writes, be patient. Yeah, I didn't think I'd hear any amens on that. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being, here's that word again, patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, verse 8, be patient. I think he's trying to make a point here. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I love this. While you're being patient, he says, verse 9, oh, by the way, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain synonym for patience, steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen, make note of this phrase, we'll, we'll land the plane on this one, the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Will you pray with me? Father, again, my heart is full of gratitude for what you're doing in this section of your vineyard. Thank you, Lord God, for the lives that are being touched and changed and shaped here. Thank you for uh, bequeathing to this church great leadership. Not perfect leadership, but leadership who is passionate about you. God, I'm reminded that at this moment, I'm, I'm speaking to a very broad audience. There are those who are here who grew up in the church. There's others who are here, maybe this is their first time in church, know nothing about Jesus maybe even had a hard time navigating their way to this text. But God, your word has the uncanny habit of being able to speak to everyone, no matter where we may be. So I pray that, I pray that the seed of your word, God, falls on good ground, that it takes root, that it produces great fruit. In the words of my grandmama, I pray that you would put shoe leather on your word, 
Make it plain and practical. Show us how we can walk in it. Use me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the, um, one of the strangest, most disheartening things that could ever happen to an oyster is to have lodged within its shell a little, little tiny grain of sand. Now, normally when that happens, 99.9 times out of 100, this oyster is, is more than adept at finding that grain of sand and removing or expelling it from off of its premises. But now there are those strange and very rare moments where try as this oyster may, it just can't seem to get rid of this grain of sand. It's in a situation, watch it now, that it cannot change. It's in a circumstance it just can't get out of. Um, if I was to quote a mid to late 90s urban poet, rap artist, I would say that it's at this moment that this oyster feels as if it's going to lose its mind up in here, up in here. Don't leave me hanging, y'all. Y'all act like y'all came out the womb singing Hillsong. Come on now, go with me, somebody. It's, it's at this moment where this oyster feels irritated, frustrated, and exacerbated. Again, it's about to go crazy. But it's also at this moment where this oyster um, now reverts to one heck of a plan B. It's as if this oyster says, if I can't, if I can't get out of this situation, let me make the most of it. So it finds this grain of sand and begins to coat it over and over and over again that ladies, when it hardens or solidifies, it turns into something that your mama or grandmama paid top dollar for, a pearl. You do know at the end of the day, all a pearl is, is the fruit of a very frustrated oyster. So next time you put on some pearls, I want you to remember you're wearing someone's bad day. If there was no irritation, if there was no frustration, if there was no exacerbation, if there was no sense of, I'm about to go crazy, there would be no pearls. Renaissance, God has sent me all the way from Silicon Valley to your neck of the woods to give you a word. That no matter where you may be on the spectrum, First time in church, grew up in church. All of us have been created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And as such, God has good plans for us. Psalm 139 says that we have been created on purpose and for a purpose. Your mama may not have planned on you being here. One of the ways you know that, by the way, is if your closest sibling is a decade older than you, <laughs> you was a surprise. But in the eyes of God, there are no surprises. There's destiny on your life. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship. Greek word poema from which we get the English word poem. 
that we are his work of art. And as such, God has an agenda for all of us that we would be trophies of his grace, pearls of great price. Boy, if I was in a chocolate Pentecostal church, cue the Hammond B3 organ. Because we're going to do some laps around here. But now our problem is, while we want the destination, pearls, we just don't want the journey or the process. Because what's true in the natural is true in the spiritual. That just as there are no pearls for oysters without life's irritating, frustrating, exacerbating grains of sand, you will never reach the harbor of God's destiny for your life of becoming a pearl of great price until you go through likewise life's proverbial grains of sand. But isn't that our problem? Our problem is we want to get to where we're going quick, fast, and in a hurry. And yet, if you could take a tour of God's kitchen, you would be shocked to discover that in God's kitchen, there are no microwaves, only crock pots. So God says, Brian, you're here. The call that I have on your life, Brian, is to bring you here to, a, to the point of fall off the bone, succulent faith. Brian, I, I, I got so much more that I want to do through you. And yet, Brian, the worst thing I could ever do to you is to give you a blessing that you do not have the character infrastructure to support. So, Brian, I know you're, you're ready for the blessing, but I'm more concerned about what's going on in you than what you're waiting on outside of you. So, Brian, I, I've got to put you in my divine crock pot. Turn up the heat a little bit. Slow cook you. Put a lid on top of you. And you're going to have to learn to do what the psalmist said in Psalm 121, to lift up your eyes into the hills from whence cometh your help, knowing your help doesn't come from the letters behind your name. It doesn't come from your zip code. It doesn't come from the money in your bank account. It doesn't come from your beauty. It doesn't come from your pedigree. It comes only from the Lord. Brian, you're going to have to learn that while you're doing your tour of duty in my crock pot to be patient. Be patient. If you're here today and you don't know much about the Bible, we are in a section of the Scriptures known as the New Testament. Within the New Testament, there's a genre of Scriptures called the Epistles. These are letters that people write to churches or groups of people. The predominant author of the New Testament, Epistles, is a guy by the name of Paul, but as you have astutely picked up, we're not reading a letter written by Paul. We're reading one written by James. If you were to beg the question, what is the difference between James's epistle or letter and Paul's epistles? Greek scholars, because that's the language of the original New Testament, tell us that the difference primarily is that in the original language, James has the highest concentration of what we would call imperatives. Now, all an imperative is, is a command. 
James speaks in directives. He speaks in commands. The original Greek syntax, it's, it's one command after another command after another. In fact, the whole book opens up with a command when he says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now he comes to our text, verse 7. He comes right out the gates with another command. It's two words in the English, one word in the Greek. It is be patient. He ain't suggesting. He's not recommending. He's not giving us tweetable advice to consider. He is grabbing us by the collars and saying to us, I know you want to hurry up and get there, but the only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had. So I am commanding you under the authority of the Spirit of God, be patient. Now hang in there, I promise you, this is as technical as this little Sunday school lesson gets, but it's one word in the Greek, two words in the English, be patient. That one word in the Greek is the Greek word, makrothumos. Makrothumos. Can you speak Greek this morning with me? Makrothumos. It's a compound word with macro meaning long and thumos, from which we get the English word thermometer, that instrument we use to measure heat. Macro thumos, therefore, means to be long towards anger. It, it means to be in a situation to where my anger is being tempted and tested. It was the great D.A. Carson, that venerable New Testament theologian at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, who wrote in his wonderful book, Scandalous, these insightful words. He says, the reason why Christians never, ever pray for patience is because we are theologically astute and sophisticated enough to realize that embedded in the very request for patience lies another request, and that is, God, put me in something I do not like. You don't learn patience in air-conditioned environments on Sunday morning. You don't learn patience when the career is going well. You don't learn patience when, when that relationship is trending in the right direction. You don't learn patience when you get the clean bill of health. Prosperity is a horrible teacher. You only learn patience when you wake up one morning and there's a lump on your breast. And you're diagnosed with breast cancer. And there's surgeries and chemos. You only learn patience when no parents, you weren't the perfect parent, but you tried your best to raise your kid in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But here that child is out in the far country, like the prodigal son, doing God knows what with God knows who. You only learn patience when you're coping with an addiction. Drug addiction, alcohol, sex, whatever it may be. And you have to learn to be patient with yourself one step at a time, one moment at a time, one day at a time. 
You only learn patience when, yet again, you got to put on one of those hideous bridesmaid dresses and stand at the altar. And I know what you're thinking. She ain't even as cute as you. Y'all so spiritual. Y'all so spiritual. I want to be careful with that because the goal, singleness, is not marriage. It's contentment in Christ. And if you can't be content before marriage, you won't be content after marriage. And single people, you need to know that while there are a lot of single people who can't wait to get married, there's a lot of married people who can't wait to be single. You only learn patience when you go into work and there's the pink slip. You're laid off. And that begins a long season of unemployment and now there's too much month at the end of the money. You only learn patience when you came to New York with big dreams and you went to that audition and you heard the no and you're hearing no after no after no after no after no and in the middle of all that you got to work that part-time gig that you just never imagined you'd be working for so long and you're wondering will your dreams ever take off macrothumos b patient Okay, Brian, thanks for that. I think I'm seeing it a little bit, but I need you to bring it down a couple of notches. Here's my question, Brian. Exactly what does patience look like? James tells us right in verse 7, right after saying be patient, I love what James does. He says, if you want to know what Christ-exalting patience looks like in your tour of duty in the crockpot, I love it. He says, look to the farmer. I love this. No farmer goes to his barren field desiring a harvest, looks down at his barren field, then up at God and says, God, in the name of Jesus, I command corn. Waiting on you, God, corn, shando, shata, name of Jesus. You know that's not how it works. Farmer goes to the field and he plows and plows and plows and sows and sows and sows and cultivates day in, day out, week in, week, week out, back-breaking work. And he does all that under one fundamental principle, unless the Lord sends the rain, his labor is in vain. So that the farmer teaches us that patience is never passive resignation. It is always active participation. It is me doing my something, waiting on God to add his something, knowing that when God puts his something to my something, now we have something. Of course, the preeminent biblical example of this is Paul. Don't you understand? Much of Paul's ministry takes place from a situation he cannot change. It's called jail. Here Paul in the crock pot, he gets there. What does he do? I tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't throw a pity party. While in the crock pot, he says, hey, do you have a pen and a piece of paper? There's some churches and people I want to encourage. While in jail, he writes and he writes and he writes. And in each of these letters, we see something else he's doing. In each of them, he says in so many words, I've been praying for you from jail. 
and then to the Philippians, this great theme that he writes, theme on joy, he writes from jail. Here you have an incarcerated person telling free people, you have, j- you have joy. Don't we do the opposite? Free people going to visit family members or friends in jail. We're trying to cheer them up. But here Paul shows us the exact opposite. What he teaches us is that you may be in the crock pot, but the crock pot doesn't have to be in you. Have joy. You don't do these things, friends, while throwing a pity party at the same time. I want to give you a pastoral word of encouragement because some of you, you're there right now. Life has come at you fast. It was an act of great faith to even get here this morning. Some of you are nursing a low-grade fever with God. The script is not going according to plan. God's word to you is, is, yes, you can cry. Yes, you can vent. That's what the Psalms are about. Yes, God can handle your feelings. But at some point, you have to eulogize the pity party. At some point, you got to get out of bed and say, in the name of Jesus, I'm here. How can I turn this grain? <laughs> oh, I love this. I remember I pastored some years in Memphis. In Memphis, I'm a Delta guy. In fact, I flew Delta here. The problem with being a Delta guy in Memphis is there's no nonstop flights. So one time I had to preach in Chicago, but because I'm a Delta guy, before I could go north to Chicago, I had to first fly south to Atlanta and change planes. In Memphis, we used to have a saying that the way to hell, we'll have a layover in Atlanta. So we get to Atlanta, there's mechanical issues, they get the plane fixed, but boy, my, I'm running late. I got to land in O'Hare, I got to speak at this event, and I'm looking at my clock while in the airplane from Atlanta, Chicago, and it's going to be tight. And God bless the pilot, because when we get to Chicago's airspace, unsolicited, unasked for, the pilot gives us an aerial tour of the city of Chicago. We keep going around and around and around. And my blood pressure is rising. I got things to do. Land the plane. But it's at that moment I understood what was going on. Aeronautical terms were in what's called a holding pattern. That simply means is maybe too much congestion, too much traffic, whatever it may be. The pilot is in communication with a group of individuals, air traffic control, who sit in a tower. They sit up high, look down low. They see what we can't see, have access to information we don't have. And that holding pattern was not for my irritation or frustration. It was actually for my good. For had that plane landed on my timetable, we would have died. Ever found yourself in a holding pattern? Ever found yourself just going around and around and around and you're saying in so many words, God, land the plane. You ought to rejoice this day because God sits up high and looks down low. He sees what you can't see, knows what you don't know. As my grandmama used to say, he may not come when you want him. But he's always. On time. Oh, I love this. 
Verse 9 says, by the way, when you're in your holding pattern, do not grumble. Y'all ain't shouting. (laughs) James is writing to a group of ethnic Jews who have recently converted to Christianity. And these ethnic Jews, when they read verse 9, I guarantee you when they read do not grumble, the first thing they think of is their forefathers and the Exodus event. And what was supposed to be a six-week journey from Egypt to Canaan turned into a 40-year holding pattern. Why? Murmur, 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 grumble, grumble, grumble. So God says, okay. Israel, we should have been there 39 years and 46 weeks ago. And the only reason why you're still in the crock pot, God says to Israel, it ain't my fault. In my perfect will, you were only supposed to be there six weeks. But your attitude is off. You're bitter, cynical, negative. So God says, We're just going to keep going around Mount Sinai till you find some joy. I wonder how many of you God is saying, you should have been out of this by now. We should have turned the page. You should have been in another chapter. Heck, you should have been in another book. But your attitude is foul. I hope you understand grumbling ain't cute to God. It's not cute, period. I remember dating. (laughs) Remember I took a girl out once. And all she did was complain and murmur and grumble. And nothing in me said, ooh, can we do this again? Why does God take grumbling seriously? The same reason why parents take it so seriously when their kids do it to them. Because the basic message of grumbling is, I know better than you. How's that working out for you? We round third and head for home in the last eight minutes and 15, 14, 13 seconds. The Holy Spirit has... He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, I love this. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. My youngest son's a ball player. Pretty good basketball player. He starts his first day of high school next week, and already he's gotten... uh, recruiting letters from major colleges across the country. Around our house, we call our son RP, retirement plan. (laughs) And I'm saving all these receipts. Just kidding. Well, maybe some of them. From the time he's a little boy, he's always loved basketball, so much so that in his room are all these these posters of great basketball players. There's Michael Jordan. Train up a child in the way he should go. 
There's LeBron James and all this nonsense about him being the GOAT. There's Kobe Bryant. There's Steph Curry. And there's been times when he was a little boy, I would stand at the doorway in his room and he wouldn't see me and I'd watch him stare at these posters and see his mind being inspired. Moments later, he would grab his ball and go outside and work on his game, imagining his future. These, these posters inspire. James says when you find yourself in life's crockpot and you ain't got to pray for it, at some point you'll get there. Yeah, sit with a therapist. Yeah, lean into community. Yeah, get pastoral counseling. But he also says, don't forget the prophets. The prophets are your patience posters. They're God's divine show and tell for patience. Sit with prophets like Ezekiel. God says, Ezekiel, my people don't understand my immutability, that is, my unchangeableness, the fact that I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. They, they keep being wishy-washy, but when they are faithless, I'm faithful. So I want to show them how patient I am with them. So Ezekiel, come here. I'm going to use you again as a visual aid for my patience. Strip down naked. Leave on your loincloth. Uh, lay on your left side. Ezekiel's like, for how long? For 390 days. Don't move. Because I want to show my people how patient I am with them. Oh, if I could just chase this rabbit for just a minute. I want you to understand no matter where you may be in your journey with God, the fact that you're alive and living right now is a testimony to the patience of God in your life. If God ever got impatient with you the way you get impatient with him, we're done. He's patient. There's Hosea. God says, Hosea, I see you've just graduated from seminary. You just got called to pastor your first church. You're single. I'm going to fix that. I got a girl picked out for you. Can't you see Hosea getting excited? Hosea says, well, what's her name, God? Her name is Gomer. Now, at this moment, I'm not excited anymore because I ain't never met a fine Gomer in my life. I'm sorry if that's your name, by the way. Well, what does she do, God? Oh, she's a prostitute. Why do you want me to marry her? Because my people are committing spiritual prostitution by whoring after other gods. And yet I'm patient with them. When they cheat on me, I go get them. Chapter 3, and when she cheats on you, I need you to do to her what I do to my people moment by moment every day of their lives. I need you to go get her. Because I'm patient. And then he ends by saying, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Job, the number 23 of patience. You thought your tour of duty in your crockpot was hell. You ain't got nothing on Job, sweetheart. Chapter 1, he loses everything. All of his money, his businesses. He goes to a funeral with ten caskets, each casket holding one of his kids. Parents aren't supposed to bury kids. He's covered from head to toe with boils as a wife chirping in his ear, curse God and die. And then in Job 19, he has the audacity to say, I know my Redeemer lives. 
Job teaches us when we go through life's crockpot, always let what we know about God trump how we feel about God. God is good no matter how he feels. And then he ends by saying, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Young man, young woman, there's a purpose of infertility. There's a purpose to the season of infertility. There's a purpose to the rebellious child. There's a purpose to the unemployment. There's a purpose to you yet again having to find another apartment and pay God-forsaken rents. There's a purpose to the dream deferred. Growing up, my mama had an annoying hobby. It's called cross-stitching. I know most of y'all don't know about this, but cross-stitching involves taking a piece of cloth and weaving threads in and out. I call this annoying because mama used to do it sitting on a sofa, and I used to always watch mama do it sitting at her feet, which means I was watching mama cross-stitch from the bottom up. I don't know if you've ever watched someone cross-stitch from the bottom up, but it's a crazy looking sight. Because from my vantage point, from the bottom up, all I saw was dangling threads. No rhythm, no rhyme, no reason, no order, no beauty, sheer chaos. I know I'm in New York, but I grew up in Atlanta, so forgive this idiom, but there are times watching mama do this for hours that it seemed as if mama's cheese had slid off her cracker. One day, I couldn't take it any longer. I said, Mama, Mama, I'm a little boy. I don't get why you do this for hours. It makes no sense. Dangling threads, no rhythm, no rhyme, no reason. Mama, how can you do this for so long? Mama just smiled and patted on the sofa next to her and invited me to sit down next to her. When I sat down next to her, I no longer looked at it from the bottom up. But now I saw it from the top down. And when I saw it from Mama's perspective, I saw beauty and order, and pattern, and purpose. Oh, friends, years later, that's when it hit me. Isn't that the problem with life? The problem with life is one of perspective. We here on earth, we only see it from the bottom up. And it seems as if God's cheese has slid off his cracker. But God is saying, oh, dear child of God, if you could only sit down next to me. You would see that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. If you could sit down next to me, you would join in the chorus with Joseph on when after spending 13 years in his own crockpot is face to face with his brothers. He says, you meant it for evil. but God meant it for good. There's a purpose. I'm out of time, but I want to pray. Sometimes we hear the word of God, friends. And it's a good word because God's word says it never comes back empty. But it's just not where I'm at. So we put it on hold and have to go back and get it at a later time. But there's other times when we hear the word of God, and it's what the Bible calls a word in season.
I don't need to put it on hold. Because it's right where I'm at right now. I want to pray for those of us, and this was a word in season. If you're in the crock pot right now, would you stand to your feet? I want to pray for you. This is where you're at right now. I, I want to pray for you. Prayer is not a spectator sport. I mean, you may even want to stand with one who's standing. Please join me in praying with them. And you may even want to stand with them or stretch a hand towards them or put a hand on them. But let us pray in faith. Father, in the name of Jesus. I pray for my brothers and sisters all across this place who by their standing, they're saying, I'm in the crockpot. I'm in a situation, Father God, that's irritating and frustrating and exacerbating. By their standing, they're saying, I'm going through something. And God, I don't know what that something is, but I am talking to one who does. So I pray several things for them in the name of Jesus. God, I pray Psalm 8 over them when you say, what is man that you are mindful of him? God, I want to begin this prayer by knowing and by declaring the fact that you know what it is they're going through. Sometimes we wonder, God, do you even know? Jesus, you say in Matthew 6 that not a single sparrow falls to the ground and you don't know about it. God, you see us. God, you know. But I love this. The psalmist not only says that you know, but he goes on to say, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? God, you care. You care about the health crisis. You care about the relational mess that we're in. You care, Lord God, about dreams that seem to have been put on hold. You care about our housing situation. You, you care, Lord God, about that wayward child. You care about that barren womb. You care. So we rebuke the enemy in this place today. We call him what Jesus called him, a father of lies. It is a lie from the pit of hell to suggest you don't care, God. You know and you care. God cares. Will you say that with me? God cares. He cares. And so, Father God, I end this prayer not by quoting a televangelist, not by quoting a prosperity preacher, but these are the words of the living, resurrected Lord and Savior, who in Matthew 7 said this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. So I'm just going off of that. In the name of Jesus, Lord God, I'm just asking, seeking, and knocking. Heal their bodies. Replenish their finances. Grant them that job. Grant that pregnancy. Breathe life into that marriage. Bring back that wayward child. End that long season of loneliness. But in the meantime, in between time, while in the crockpot, would you strengthen us to be patient? Amen.